0: Well, good morning. morning. What a joy and privilege it is for me to be able to bring God's word to my church family this morning. If you were with us last Sunday, Pastor David started us off in this month-long series on the marks of a healthy church. And we focused last week on the mark of biblical church leadership. And this morning, we're going to look closely at another mark of a healthy church, biblical church, and that is biblical church membership. Well, what amazing providence. I didn't plan it this way, I promise. These member candidates coming this morning, reciting the member's covenant, I think we're done. I think everything has been said. Uh, what a blessing, what perfect timing uh, to, to, to come to this topic. So um, before we jump in, let's just take a moment to come before the Lord in prayer. Father God, we are humbled by your grace and your mercy. Lord, as we come to you this morning, we know we have nothing to offer All we desire is to bring glory to your name, speak to us now from your word, convict us in areas we need to be convicted of, and Lord, we pray that this church would be healthy and honoring to your name. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, in our day and age, we're all about membership. Some memberships we don't even have to think twice about. They're just so indispensable to us, we don't mind paying for it, right, like Costco Netflix, Amazon Prime, AAA. And you know, some some memberships, however, are we, we consider them a luxury that maybe once in a while we would occasionally splurge, like the Disneyland magic key pass, which requires a mortgage to finance. <laughs> and other memberships we work really hard to earn and to maintain, whether it's having a place on your club soccer team or your varsity volleyball team or your business frat or your professional society, or that high-ranked, uh, nationally-ranked uh, college that you're a part of, or your top-tier company that you work so hard to interview at, or, or maybe even diamond status in Hilton Honors. And yet, for various reasons, many people don't see the, the need or the importance of membership in a local church. Some shy away from church membership because of their fear of commitment, for the same reason that people may ask, why should I get locked down in marriage if I'm not really sure things may work out and we might want to move on? Or why should I get locked down in this 30-year mortgage in case I might have to move? Or well, why should I stay at this job longer than a year because I might find something better? And in the same way, why should I commit to this church as a member because I might have to move? Wait, what if I find a better church somewhere? Others avoid committing to membership because of a fear of accountability. They like to be on their own. You know, I I don't mind coming every Sunday, I don't mind joining in some activities, but to become an official member, that's a little bit too invasive. I would rather keep other believers at an arm's distance so I can comfortably do what I want to do and not have people asking me too many tough questions. And others reject the notion of church membership because it's just too exclusive. Right? Our society really now emphasizes so much inclusivity and tolerance and, and rejects any trace of delineation and discrimination. And so delineating those who belong in the church and those who do not, it just smells foul. I mean, why not just open the doors to everyone? Isn't God a God of love and mercy? Why be exclusionary if God isn't? And for others... Simply, they just have never understood the Bible's teaching on membership. It could be that the churches that they were a part of never really clearly defined what membership is, didn't really emphasize it or didn't even have it. Or if they did have it, maybe they thought that it was a concept that was invented by man for the sake of convenience or control. Well, that was very much the case for me. The church that I grew up in had a pretty loose definition of marriage, the uh, no marriage, membership, such that I didn't... Yes, it did have a good definition of marriage. <laughs> membership, such that I never knew that it was actually a biblical concept. I just thought it was something that was necessary to determine who had a vote or who, had, who didn't for church decisions. But coming to IBC, I was incredibly refreshed to see this church very intentionally understanding and applying what the scriptures teach on biblical membership. And being a member at IBC has been, for me, one of the greatest catalysts of my own spiritual growth. And I can see that to be the same for many of you. That's why out of all the marks of a healthy church, I chose to focus on church membership today, because it's near and dear to my heart. I just couldn't wait to just jump into the scriptures, and I really savored studying the scriptures on this topic, and I really wanted to share with you this morning what the word says, what God has spoken to us, so that we might rightfully understand what church membership is all about, as God intends it. So there's some questions that we're going to be answering in our time together. First, what is church membership Just so we're all on the same page. And then, is church membership actually a biblical concept? And if it is, what do church members actually do? Whether you're a Christian who's on the fence about joining a local church, or you are a Christian who is a member of a local church like this one, and needs to be exhorted to fulfill your responsibilities as a member of the body, my prayer is that you may be challenged and encouraged by God's word this morning. So the title of this message is The Greatest Membership of All, and I hope you'll be convinced that this really is. But before we get into the meat and potatoes, uh, let's first define what we're talking about. What do we actually mean when we say church membership? Let's just get a little bit formal. I'll give you some definitions that I found from theologian Greg Allison. says that the church is the people of God who have been saved through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ and have been incorporated into his body through baptism with the Holy Spirit. Right, So every member is a genuine Christian and has been made part of the same body of Christ. Grace Community Church, just a few miles away from here, they say this, to become a member of a church is to formally commit oneself to an identifiable local body of believers who have joined together for specific divinely ordained purposes. There's a formal commitment, right, just like we just saw a coven that we just read, between the members of a local body for specific purposes that God has laid out. And maybe in simpler terms. Uh, Jonathan Lehman, he's from the Nine Marks organization, he writes this Church membership is a declaration of citizenship in Christ's kingdom. It's a passport, it's an announcement made in the press room of Christ's kingdom. It's the declaration that you are an official, licensed, card carrying, bona fide Jesus representative. I like that. Well, now that we've seen some of the formal definitions of church membership, I want us to construct our own understanding organically as we look through Scripture. So this begs the question, though, is church membership biblical? Because, you know, I don't see any chapter and verse commanding Christians to become members of a church. And that's because you never read 3 Timothy. No, I'm just kidding. It's not, there's, there's no specific church, uh, chapter and verse that says you must become a member. But I, I believe there's overwhelming evidence In scripture that membership was practiced in the early church and so many of the new testament commands imply it so we're going to unpack the biblical evidence we're going to be jumping around through a lot of different passages so please bear with me and as we mentioned earlier many in our day and age they they frown upon any kind of distinctions made between people but we see god making distinctions from the very beginning You remember in the Garden of Eden, when God created the Garden of Eden, he put Adam inside of the garden. And when Adam and Eve sinned, he cast them out. He barred them from ever coming back in again. You see, there's an outside and there's an inside. We fast forward to chapter 7 of Genesis and we see God commanding Noah to bring his family and, and the animals into the ark. And then God shut Noah and his family in and everyone else outside perished. Then when God gave gave Moses the law, he made it clear to the people of God that they had to be ceremonially clean to remain remain inside the camp or else they would be put outside, not to defile the camp. And for a person to be part of the nation of Israel, God required them to keep various dietary laws, feasts, geopolitical boundaries, places of worship. They couldn't intermarry with other nations. Why? Why? so that they could be set apart as God's holy people. So having a dividing line between those inside and those outside is not novel. It's not surprising when we come to the New Testament at the dawn of the early church. It's part and parcel to how God designates those who are his and those who are not. So you see, church membership is not a modern invention, nor is it an invention. It was there at the birth of the church as we see in the book of Acts. So let's go back. Let's go back to the early 30s. I don't mean the 1930s. I mean, like, the 30s, right? In Acts 1, after Jesus ascended, about 120 believers are gathered together trying to find a replacement for Judas Iscariot among the 12. Then we come to chapter 2 of Acts. On the day of Pentecost, we have devout Jews coming from every nation under heaven, gathering together, and the Holy Spirit comes upon them and that Peter calls on them to repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus. And those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about three thousand souls. And the very, the very next verse, Acts two forty-two tells us that they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, and to breaking of bread and to prayer. And the result was the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And it wasn't long before we come to chapter 4, and, and, and Luke writes that the number of the men came to about 5,000. Well, this budding church faced intense persecution from the Jewish authorities. And you would think, right, that that would squelch the, the growth of the church. But instead, it actually expanded out the church into faraway lands, faraway regions. And then over and over, as you read the rest of the book of Acts, you just keep hearing that multitudes of believers were being added to the, to the Lord. So it's clear that someone's keeping track of the numbers, right? There's, there's this many, and then there's this many, and then these more added, and then it became this many. So we see there is, there is a, a church that's growing, but at the same time, there, we see in the book of Acts, these believers, they start meeting up in local churches. We see Luke mentioning several times the church of Jerusalem, the church in Antioch. And Paul and Barnabas, as they go around, they're appointing elders in every church. That tells you there's multiple churches that are existing at this point. And last week, we were in Acts 20, Paul called the elders from the church of Ephesus to come. And then we come outside of the book of Acts, question, to whom did the apostles write their epistles, write their letters? To the churches of Galatia, to the church of the Thessalonians, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, to the church of God that is at Corinth, to the saints who are in Ephesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, To the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. You see, in each of these cases, there are local congregations to whom Paul and Peter are writing. Not not directly the broader, broader church community, though it applies there too. It was specifically for these local congregations. And then we hear about a house church meeting at Priscilla and Aquila's house. A house church at Nympha's house. A house church in Philemon's house. And, and finally, though it, it wasn't explicitly a record of church members, in First Timothy, Paul tells, Paul tells Timothy how to keep a record of widows who should be enrolled onto a list of those who would receive support from the church and those who, were, who would not be on that list. So there is some record-keeping of those who are in and those who are out. So I hope you can see from this, right? The pattern in the early church is we have local congregations meeting together. There, there's some tracking of numbers, and there's some definition of those who are in and those who are out. But <clears throat> why do we have to be so formal and talk about membership? Where did that idea come from? Well, the word member was not coined by some theologian or some denomination, but rather the Apostle Paul himself, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he used this exact word to describe the individual Christian once he or she is saved. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 12, starting at verse 12. 1 Corinthians 12:12. 12. 12 as we consider the spiritual reality of of every believer. Verse 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. How many bodies are there? There's one. How many members are there? There's many. Well, who are these members? Anyone who was baptized in the Holy Spirit into the body. And this happens at the moment of salvation. This is distinct from water baptism, right? Every believer, at the moment they're saved, they are baptized in the Holy Spirit. And so every Christian shares in the same common experience. We just sing about it, right? One one body, one spirit. And this is what unites us all. Every Christian, doesn't matter where you are, we have the same experience, and we're all part of that same one body. And Paul continues in this passage, he goes going on to say that each member rightfully belongs to the, to the body, each member is unique, each member plays an indispensable role in the body. It's hard to find a more appropriate and vivid analogy than the, the body, right? We all get it. We all have one. So we understand how that works right? Your human body consists of different members like the thyroid gland and the the sternum, right? And yet the body works together in unison to keep alive and to function. And in the same way, the church consists of a wide variety of individuals, gifts, strengths, weaknesses, but they work together for the same purposes, to glorify God. And they have the same shared experiences of joy and of, of pain, but I know what some of you are thinking at this point, you're thinking, wait, hold on, Paul in this passage, he's referring to the universal church, not a, a local church like IBC. Well, you're right, it, it does say that the, all Christians are baptized into one body. There is one single body, not many local bodies, at least in this, in this verse here, right? For sure, it doesn't matter if, if you were saved in, in, in Peru or in Papua New Guinea, uh, you know, back in the year 21 AD or 2021 AD, uh, once you're saved, you become part of that same global universal church. But it is also true that every Christian is, at the same time, expected to be a member of the local church. Christian, your membership in the universal church has special and necessary expression in your membership in a local church. I'll say that again. Your membership in the universal church has special and necessary expression in your membership in a local church. And in fact, when you look closer at this passage, 1 Corinthians 12, much of it actually doesn't make sense if Paul's only talking about the universal church. right? Because how could the eye tell the hand, I don't need you, unless the eye and the hand, they, they knew each other well enough to make that assertion, right? Or how could the foot say to himself, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong in this body, Unless he understood the makeup of the body and understood the, na- the dynamics of the body to be able to make that assessment. And verse 18 asserts that God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. Again, that only makes sense if we're talking about the context of local churches, because it is by God's perfect wisdom that he chose to place the specific members here at IBC and arranged the, the members at Grace Church in a- another configuration and the members at CCAC, and yet in another arrangement. No, no two congregations look alike, and that's exactly what God wanted. And finally, if we look at verse 26, Paul says, If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Right? For, for the body to be able to suffer together, rejoice together, it implies that there's a certain level of intimacy and shared experiences this happens best in the context of a local body. I mean, when a believer in Shanghai suffers, does, does the, churches, the churches in Johannesburg, South Africa, do they, do they know exactly what's going on? I mean, they might send an email and might have a prayer request and they might pray, but they don't really understand as much as the other believers there in, in Shanghai, right? There's something, there's something very intimate and unique about the local church context, and that's how we as IBC were able to suffer together and, and rejoice together because we know each other so well. So we see this reality that when an individual is saved by Christ, he becomes a member of the one universal body instantly, automatically. But simultaneously, he should be living out that as well as a member of a local body. So dear Christian, to be a church is to be one of its members. Well, another place that we see local church membership as vital is in the way that churches are led. We we looked at this a little bit last week in the book of Acts that a healthy church is marked by biblical godly leadership. And indeed, the pattern we see in the New Testament, how churches are led, is, is typically a plurality of elders overseeing each congregation. We just said how Paul and Barnabas in Acts 14, they, they, ha- they went around in different regions appointing elders for them in every church. And then Paul, he instructed his protege, Titus, to do the same on the island of Crete. Hey, I left you there. Why? So that you may appoint elders in every town as I directed you. But what exactly is the elder's role in the church? We touched on this a little last week, but look with me in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 2. 1 Peter 5, verse 2. The Apostle Peter, he's an elder himself. And so he wanted to encourage his fellow elders at other local churches with these words. 1 Peter 5, 2. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Notice that Peter urges the elders to shepherd the flock of God that is among you. These are sheep whom the elders rub shoulders with on a regular basis and are in proximity to, right? As an elder, you know, we're, you know I'm not called to shepherd the worldwide flock. Uh, Christians living overseas in Hong Kong. I mean, how, how, how is an elder able to know those sheep well enough to effectively shepherd, to know their situation, their spiritual condition, and to exercise oversight over them? And how can the sheep over there in Hong Kong understand and know an elder here in L.A. well enough for him to be an effective example for them. This dynamic only works if we have a local body of, of shepherds and sheep rubbing shoulders on a regular basis, spending a lot of time together regularly over an extended period of time. Well, this leads to another question What is expected of the flock, the members of the church? Now turn with me to Hebrews 13. Hebrews 13, this is the last chapter of that letter which has a bunch of practical exhortations. We're going to look exactly at Hebrews thirteen seventeen. Hebrews thirteen seventeen says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls, as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. And then jump up a little bit to verse 7. <clears throat> Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. So we, we, we believers, all of us, are called to obey our leaders and to submit to their God-given authority. Why? Because they're going to have to give an account to God. Hey, what happened to this sheep? Why is this sheep straying? Hey, what happened to that sheep? How come that sheep is not obeying? And Christians are also called to remember their leaders, to study their lives, to copy their example, to imitate their faith. How can we do this? Is it by slipping in and out of the pews quickly? Coming once in a while when it's convenient for you? Or is it rather committing as a member to a church, a local church, so that your elders can know you well enough to properly shepherd you and that you know them well enough that you can imitate their faith? So as we read through the New Testament, we find that another mark of a healthy church is the practice of church discipline. And why do I mention that? Because this goes hand in hand with church membership. Christ intends for his church to be a holy people, his holy bride, with a righteous testimony before the world. Right? God calls us to be holy as he is holy. And he calls us to, to take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but expose them. So he has prescri- prescribed the specific protocol for dealing with sin among the members of the church, and that is through discipline administered by a local church. Matthew 18:15. Jesus prescribes a four-step procedure for dealing with a sinning member in the local church. Step one, if your brother sins, you should go talk to him privately and call him to repentance. Hopefully it stops right there. A lot of times it stops right there. But if he doesn't listen, step two, take one or two others with you and do the same. Why? To establish the charge on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Again, we hope it stops here, but if it doesn't, <clears throat> if he still doesn't listen, then you tell it to the church, hoping that now he would be convicted as he sees the whole family trying to bring him to his senses. But if he still doesn't listen, step four, the church will treat him as a, as a Gentile, as a tax collector, as one who's outside of the community of faith. But you see, for this discipline process to work properly, what do you need to know? You need to know who is in the church and who is not. Because step three, how do you tell it to the church if you don't know who's part of the church, right? And how do you do step four? How do you treat an individual as an outsider to the church if you don't know who's inside or who's outside, who's in there in the first place and who's out? And if we want to see a real outworking of this procedure, uh, of church discipline happening, we, we can turn to 1 Corinthians 5. And this is an example happening in the church of Corinth. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 1. It paints the scene for us. Paul says that it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you of a kind that is not even tolerated even among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Ah, a grotesque sin has been committed by a member of the Corinthian church. A man was having sex with his stepmother. Yeah, that's nasty. It's so nasty that even the pagans were just shocked by it, right? Because for a Christian to commit a sin that the the world fancies, that's shameful. But for a Christian to commit a sin that even the world bristles at, absolutely ludicrous. And to make matters worse, his local church family had no problem with it. In fact... They were arrogantly defending him and even boasting about it. Instead, they should have been mourning the sin. So what does Paul call them to do? Verse 2, Let him who has done this be removed from among you. There's no dilly-dallying. There's no sugarcoating. There's no beating around the bush. Excommunicate this individual from your church body now. But notice that for this individual to be removed from among you, there has to be, again, a delineation between those who were in and those who were out, right? If there's a student at your school who is caught cheating and they want to expel him or her, right? What if, I mean, it doesn't make any sense if that student wasn't enrolled at the school to begin with. This immoral member could not be removed from the Corinthian church if he wasn't clearly a member to begin with. But why was such drastic action necessary? There are some situations that it's more appropriate to be patient and slow. But this was not one of them. Why? Because in verse 6, Paul explains that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. You know, when I make sourdough bread, I start by adding just 30 grams of sourdough starter to 600 grams of flour and water. A 5% ratio, like tiny, tiny amount. But a few hours later, the whole thing is bubbly and smelling sour and all of that. It's really true. A tiny little sin is enough to spoil the whole church. So this type of sin had to be quickly and relentlessly cleansed out. They had to cleanse out the old leaven of malice and evil so that they could be a new unleavened lump of sincerity and truth. But why does the church have to do this? In verse 12, Paul says, What have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Members of a church have no business judging those outside. That, that's God's job. But, but they do have the God-given authority to judge those who are inside the church. So Paul here, he, he, in verse 13, he says, Purge the evil person from among you. He quotes this exactly from the Old Testament. God gives, gives that exact command several times to, to tell Israel, Purge any false prophet from among you, any idolater from among you, any rebellious son among you, any false witness from among you, any adulteress from among you. Because these sins were so heinous and so destructive that these sinners had to be removed from Israel immediately. And this was the case here as well. But for the Corinthian church to be able to purge this evil person from among them, they had to know who was truly among them and who was not. So, for proper church discipline to happen, it's only possible when there is meaningful church membership. And likewise, if you have a biblical understanding of church membership, it necessitates Church discipline. And that's why we have both and uphold both here at IBC. Well, now that we've deci- defined what church membership is, and we've shown that it's not an invention of man but God's intentional design, we must now learn what God expects of every member in a local body. What does this body life look like? First of all, God expects members of a local church to assemble together on a regular basis, right? And I was thinking, instead of us calling out, Avengers, assemble! It should be, all members, assemble, right? That should be our rallying cry. We should always be calling that. Because to be a member of a local body, it means that you are a member of the local body. You're actually present with the body. You're actually living side by side with the other members. You're helping the body thrive as you do your part. I don't know about your body, but but you know, does your heart or your femur or your eyes only show up to work when it feels like it? Your organs are constantly doing their job. They're always there. You can rely on them. Indeed, Hebrews 10 24 to 25. A very strong statement there, right? For us to hear. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near the writer of of Hebrews acknowledged that some of his readers were habitually neglecting to meet together for whatever reason, maybe they didn't see the value in it, they didn't see that it was important to have regular face to face fellowship maybe they like to have that distance they're just growing spiritually on their own, they're just fine But God expects believers to habitually meet together for what purpose? What should be on your minds as you come here on a a Sunday morning? What should you be thinking about? According to this this verse here, we should be thinking hard and creatively about this question. How can I encourage that brother, that sister, to grow in love? Love for God, love for others, and to, to grow in good works? How, how can I do this strategically? What would, what would work? And that's why we need these deep spiritual conversations to figure out where each person is at. We need to ask those questions. We need to be serving the body. We need to be praying with our fellow saints, or else we're going to be stunted in our growth, and we're going to be stingy in our fruit-bearing. All of us, every believer, we all need to be to encourage and to be encouraged on a regular basis, well, we're going to be greatly discouraged. Earlier in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 13, it says, But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. If we're not paying attention, if we're on cruise control, or even worse, Tesla autopilot, we can easily slide into apathy. And then, before we know it, a hardening of our hearts starts to set in because of sin in our lives. Now, you see my finger here? Many years ago, I was playing basketball, and I dislocated this finger. But instead of going to see a physical therapist right away, I don't know, I just waited for some reason. And instead of being able to break up all the scar tissue and all of that, I waited a whole month before I finally went to see the the physical therapist. And he's like, it's kind of too late. It's kind of stuck this way unless we break it. And to me, that's a visible description of what happens, right? If we just let sin fester, we just let it go, we don't address it right away, it just starts to get hardened and hardened and hardened to a point where we really, it's hard to fix it. We need this exhortation of one another every single day. We need that, re- that regular, immediate exhortation or else we start to be hardened by sin. We need to be asking those hard questions. We need to be prying deeper, confessing our sins, praying for one another, pursuing accountability. And so we members of the church need to be regularly gathering together. That's what the early church did. They devoted themselves to, to fellowship, to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to breaking of bread and the prayers. Right? They're meeting together around God's word, eating together, praying together. It's such a great summary of what the church is to be all about. What else do local churches do as they meet together? A crucial element of our gatherings as a body is the celebration of the ordinances of the faith. Well, there's two. There's baptism and the Lord's Supper, also known as communion, which signify our covenant relationship with God through Christ. But they also these ordinances also, they, they give substance to our membership by clearly de- delineating those who are inside and those who are outside. Right? Those who are inside are those who have been baptized and who are welcome to partake at the Lord's table. Let's talk about these each in turn. First, baptism. Baptism is is the visible testimony of a believer showing her faith in the crucified, buried, risen Savior, right? It's a physical outward display, sign of an inward spiritual reality of the Holy Spirit's work of salvation in them. And baptism is such a beautiful picture as well of our union with Christ, joining with Him in His death to sin and His resurrection to new life, Romans six. Verse 3 talks about that. And as the individual is immersed in the baptismal waters and is brought up again, we see a vivid display of, of the Christian's spiritual burial and resurrection. And it's also a picture of, of, of the forgiveness, the washing away of sins. It's such a beautiful, vivid picture. Well, you know, baptism isn't a requirement for salvation, but it, is, it should be the Christian's first act of obedience following their conversion. And that's what we see here. When, when Peter preached his powerful sermon at Pentecost in Acts 2, the, the list, his listeners were cut to their heart. They're like, what should we do? He said, repeat, repent, and be baptized, every one of you. In the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sins. And what happened? Those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So when a person repents, puts their faith in Christ, their next immediate question should be like the Ethiopian eunuch. What prevents me from being baptized? But you know what's so special too? Baptism is also a a sign of fellowship and identification with the body of Christ. Because the very next verse, right after I just just read, those who received received this word were baptized and they were added that day, about 3,000 souls, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. The very same people who were saved were also baptized, and they were also added to the membership of the church, and they also participated in the life and the fellowship of the church. So putting this all together, we can see how baptism really is central to the life of the church. As the church baptizes individuals, it publicly affirms the conversion and faith of the new believer. And as the church admits only baptized believers into its membership, it ensures that That the body consists only of those whose hearts have been truly regenerated. This is why baptism is not something generally to be done by yourself in your own swimming pool at home. It's a function of the gathered members of the body. And guess what? In a few weeks, December 5th, we're going to have our own baptism service here. Uh, We're going to have that privilege of witnessing um, baptism. It's It's going to be awesome. It's going to be glorious. So please come. It's a family event. Now, what about the Lord's Supper or Communion? Jesus institutes this ordinance on the night that he was betrayed. And Paul talks about it too in 1 Corinthians eleven, twenty-three. Now, Jesus commands his disciples to receive the Lord's Supper in remembrance of him. So the bread represents his body broken for us. The cup represents his blood shed for us. Right? It's a regular, visible, tangible reminder of the gospel, of Christ's sacrifice for our sins. But why do we call it communion? Well, because we actually commune with our risen Lord, who is present in a unique way, fellowshipping with his people. 1 Corinthians 10.16 says that the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation, that that word koinonia can also be translated communion, right? Is it not a participation, a communion in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation, a communion in the body of Christ? Not only do we commune with Christ but we also commune with our fellow saints. Because the very next verse, 1 Corinthians 10, 17, says, Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Maybe we kind of missed this, because now we have these individually bite-sized packets that make a lot of sound as we open them. And it kind of feels like we're all on our own, right? But we're all partaking of the same same bread. And, uh, you know, I just remember many years back, I was in Brazil, and... uh, they offered me this drink in a gourd. It's called terere or yerba mate. They, they put all, this, all these herbs in there or leaves in there. They pour water with a the straw. They give it to one person. They drink it, pass it back, fill more water, pass the next person, drink it, and just keep doing it. And, yeah, I drank some, shared by everyone. We're all drinking from the same, same cup, right? Just kind of a visible picture of that. But each believer, it, we're all partaking of the same bread who is Christ. And, and so that's what unites us all, not only to Christ but also to each other. So again, this is why communion, it, this, the Lord's Supper, it's a meal for the gathered church. Four times, Paul says in this passage, when you come together. If the Lord's Supper symbolizes the unity of all the members of the church, then how could that be possible with anything less than all the members of the, 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 the member uh, participating, right? It's not, again, it's not intended for you to observe the Lord's table privately in the comfort of your own home. And that's why during the pandemic, when we were very restricted in our meetings, we decided that we would not observe communion until we could have the whole church family together again. So the next time we, we, we share the Lord's table, we just did it last week, please remember that you're not just eating the wafer, drinking the, the juice by yourself. And look around, we're, we're all seated at the table together. But notice, the Lord's table is not open to just anyone. The passage continues in 1 Corinthians 11, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Right. So, So we see only those who are genuine believers, those who truly understand the significance of Christ's sacrifice for them, can partake, But not only that, only believers who have examined themselves solemnly first of all and concluded that they're not observing in an unworthy manner, like just going through the motions or, or just clinging to unrepentant sin or harboring bitterness or disunity in your heart with others. If you were to partake in such a scenario, you would be inviting God's judgment on yourself. That's why the regular observance of, of communion has such a purifying influence on the body. It makes us constantly check ourselves, remind ourselves of the gospel, make sure that we're right with God and with, with our fellow brothers and sisters. But when all the members of the church are observing the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner, it, it really demonstrates that unity of the body of Christ and, and, it, and maintains it, it, preserves it, and nurtures it. So, what a blessing. God has given us the ordinances to the church and they're especially crucial to preserve a, a membership that's regenerate. We could think of baptism like the front door of the church, where we ensure that only truly born-again individuals are incorporated into the body. Otherwise, they are barred from entry. And then we could see the Lord's Supper as the back door to ensure that the members of the church are walking in obedience to the Lord, are showing fruit of repentance and faith, and, and are displaying unity with, with fellow brothers and sisters. Otherwise, they are barred from participating at the Lord's table. Well, what else do church members do as they gather together? Do they just sit around and be fed? One of the many spiritual blessings that a Christian receives from God is, is spiritual gifts. Right? There's, there's at least there's five different lists of spiritual gifts in the New Testament. They're not exhaustive. They just point to the fact that there is an almost limitless variety of different spiritual gifts. And Paul writes in Romans 12.4, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. We're not all an eye, we're not all an ear. We're all different, just as God intended us to be. But why did God give us these gifts? Was it to benefit ourselves? 1 Peter 4.10 and 11, Peter says, as each, has get, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. As good stewards of God's varied grace, whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ that's a nice summary of all the spiritual gifts, right? All the spiritual gifts are roughly those that are more speaking, more up in front, and those who are more, those that are more serving behind the scenes. But whatever the gift that you have is, or gifts that you have are, we're to use them for the express purpose of serving one another. And Paul also says that it is, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good, in 1 Corinthians 12. But you know, some of us, some of you sitting here might be feeling that, I don't have anything to offer. I'm not gifted like that, sister. I'm not talented like that, brother. Are are you criticizing God? Because His word is clear that every believer has received an indispensable gift. And if you're not sure how the Spirit has gifted you, just start serving in various capacities. You're going to come to see that the the types of ministries that you just naturally gravitate toward or that you naturally excel at or you'll see needs in the body that you're uniquely burdened for or uniquely equipped to meet. And notice also, we can't say to any member, hey, I don't need you, we don't need you in this body. Because even the members that look weaker are indispensable. That's what Paul tells us, 1 Corinthians 12. So no matter what, God, what gifts God has given you, we need you. Do you love teaching God's word? We need you. you love serving behind the scenes? We need you. Are you the type of person who's super black and white about everything? We need you. Or are you the type that's more gracious and sympathetic and understanding? We need you. Are you excellent at leading, gifted at giving, admirable at administrating? Whatever the case may be, we need you all. And every church is different, as we mentioned. God arranged the members just as he chose. He knew exactly what he was doing when he put IBC together, and he makes no mistake even the more challenging members God put here, perhaps to humble us and to teach us patience and grace. Well, not only are church members called to use their spiritual gifts to edify one another, more broadly, every Christian is called to love one another and to do good to one another, right? That's why Jesus said that by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Anyone observing our church should be able to say, wow, they really love each other. That, they must be disciples of Christ. They must be followers of Jesus. And in Galatians 6.10, Paul says that, So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Right? As Christians, we're supposed to look for every opportunity we have to do good, but especially to those who are members of the household. Here's another analogy for the church. Right? Not only, not only are we members of the body, we're also members of the same household. You know, like when you go into someone's house during Christmas time coming up and you see all the stockings over the fireplace with each person's name? Well, all of our stockings, our names, are listed out there right you know, in this household of faith. Well, what does it look like to love the members and to do good to them? There's just so many. The, the New Testament is chock full of one another commands that God calls us to live out with our fellow members. I want to just read out a few of them. And I want you to just, just, just listen and just think about you know how can I how can I apply this I want you to feel the weight of them I'm just reading a selection of the one another commands Be at peace with one another Don't grumble among one another Wash one another's feet Accept one another Serve one another Don't bite devour or consume one another Bear one another's burdens Speak truth to one another Submit to one another Count one another as more significant than yourselves. Don't lie to one another. Be kind, tender-hearted, and forgiving to one another. Encourage and build one another up. Confess sins to one another. Pray for one another. Show hospitality to one another. And the best of all, greet one another with a holy kiss. Maybe you've been thinking that being a church member is, is, is pretty laid back and passive. As long as I become a member, I just come every Sunday, show up, listen to the sermon, and leave. But I don't know. When I, read, when I heard those one another commands, it's very active. We, we should be looking for countless opportunities to, to love and to do good to our fellow brother and sister. But some Christians think that, you know, it's the, it's the elder's responsibility for shepherding the flock of God. And that's true. We just read that, First Peter But it's not only the elders' responsibility. If you read through the New Testament, it's very clear that that it's a ministry of the pew, right? Everyone there who's sitting, sitting here in the pew, so to speak, right? All of us are called to spiritually care for one another. That's why it's so essential that we are meeting together regularly, right? Sundays are the highlight of the week, What a blessing. We get to come together, hear God's word together. We get to sing God's praises together. We get to serve one another. We get to encourage one another. We get to pray together. We get to laugh together, cry together, lift each other's burdens. It's so, so, so precious. Nothing like it. Our midweek flocks are so helpful after a long, busy week to just get together with fellow believers and to pray with each other, discuss God's word together. There's just so many avenues, it doesn't even have to be regular. Just set up something quick, a quick lunch at Chipotle, right? Invite people over to dinner at your house. I mean, even a short get-together can pay a rich spiritual dividends. And these opportunities that we have, God uses to sanctify us so much. We're called to admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. This is how we learn to be gracious and, and patient and forgiving, just like God is with us. And we get to learn to be just like Christ. He came not to be served, but to serve, right? We can't have this consumer mentality. We're just always, oh, what do I get out of it? What do I get out of it? Oh, I don't know if I want to go. What if, it's not going to help me. No, you should be asking yourself, how, how can I give of myself to bless others? So now what? What do we do in response to all that we've heard? If you're already a member of a local church like, like IBC, I hope you can see all the more clearly why we truly do have the greatest membership of all. Now it's on you to fulfill your, your ministry as a member of the body. And if you're not a Christian, sorry, if you are a Christian, but you're not a member of a local church, I want you to listen to these words from Mark Dever. He's senior pastor of Capitol Hill Baptist Church. He says this, if you call yourself a Christian, but you are not a member of the church you regularly attend, I worry that you might be going to hell. And I saw some eyebrows rise. Okay, he, he meant those words to be provocative. He didn't literally mean that to, to make you cause you to constantly doubt your salvation, but rather to emphasize how vital, how necessary it is for every Christian to become a member of a local church. And I pray that God has persuaded you this morning through his word of this exact truth. So I encourage you, find a Bible-believing church that exalts God, that preaches his word faithfully, that lives out its teaching and loving community, and if you're still looking, you're at one right now, so you don't have to keep looking. Um, and if you're interested in becoming a believer, Nam just explained the, the process, and we do have a membership class at 1 30 this afternoon. We'd love to see you. We'd love to have you part of the... It is such a, it's such a blessing, isn't it? Every time we induct new members, it's just like we're gaining new, new siblings. It's just it's amazing. It is such a joy. And finally, if you're not a Christian... Sad to say that none of this applies to you because only Christians are members of the church. But you know what's more tragic than missing out on this greatest membership? It's missing out on eternal life with your creator. And just as Peter called out to the crowds in Acts 2, I want to also call out to you to repent, to believe, to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. You absolutely, this is the most important thing of all that God created you, he owns you, and for that reason, he calls the shots. And he requires every person to be holy and perfect. But we can't be, because every one of us are sinners. Even the smallest sin is enough to condemn you to hell, because the wages of sin is death. But God has sent his own son, who is 100% God, 100% man. He took your place. He bore the penalty that you had to pay because of your sins. He took your place. And you have to believe that, that, that Christ died on that cross for you. He, raised, he was raised from the dead, gaining victory over sin, over death, over Satan. You believe that, and you turn from your wicked ways, your evil ways, turn to the Lord in faith, and you will be saved. And if you want to talk more about that, any member would love to talk to you about that further. Well, as we endeavor to follow God's word and living out his church as he intended, may he be glorified and magnified as we represent him as members of his body. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for your precious word. We're so thankful for your amazing wisdom and all the things that you have designed and done, and especially for the church. What a blessing it is that you have called us all to be part of the universal church, but also to be members of a local church. Lord, may your word convict our hearts this morning. And we pray for IBC in particular that you would cause us to be a vibrant church where we are practicing the one another's, speaking the truth and love to one another, and growing and growing and maturing to your glory, to your praise. Thank you, Lord, for this precious time and for your precious word. In your name we pray.